Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Merry Christmas! That's pretty good. Hey, open your Bible to, ready for it, to Genesis, to the very beginning. Open your Bibles to Genesis, is where we'll be this morning. I want to be there this morning because the Christmas story really didn't begin in a manger. Uh, It began in a garden. Maybe you don't realize that. But in the beginning, God made everything. He made everything to declare His glory and everything to be the perfect home for humanity. And we were made to know God fully, to delight in it, to enjoy really being up close and personal with God and to trust fully in His care and to rest in his care for us. That's what we were made for. If I was to summarize Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in a sentence, it would say, God created the world as a sacred space, and he loved everything that he made, humanity most of all, and that was so good for Adam and for Eve to be in that sacred space space with God. The cool thing about how God made the world is he made it with his fingerprints on everything. Everything that God made is meant to declare something about his nature, about his power, his beauty, his creativity, his kindness, his goodness. It's all over everything that God has made. And humanity was here to enjoy that and see that and delight in it. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves. We were made to know God to be with him and like all of creation, to be oriented around him and to delight in him. We were made in his image so that as we looked around at each other, we would constantly have in front of our face reminders of what God is like. The command to be fruitful and multiply is there simply that we, it, would, it would be unmistakable. Everywhere we look, we would see image bearers and we would say, oh, God is good. Can't you see it in the faces of his people? God is kind. Can't you see it in the actions of his people, and then we would have this this undistracted worship, this undeterred worship of our God, being thankful for all of the good things that he has made for us and all of the good people that God has made on the face of the earth. Genesis 2, verse 8 says, Then the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. The Garden of Eden, ever heard of it? Right? The Garden of Eden was home for Adam and for Eve, and it's a special place that God made just for them to live and to be, to exist, and to delight in Him. We don't know a lot about the Garden of Eden, but here's some things we do know. First, we know that God Himself was there. In Genesis 3.8, it says, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So it's a place that Adam and Eve could be fully present with God. They could hear his voice, perhaps his footsteps as he walked along through the garden. They could say, oh, that is our God, and he is coming. They could speak with him. They could perhaps touch him. They could be there face-to-face with our Lord and nothing separating them. It was a place of being with him. It was a place where everything was provided for Adam and Eve. You, You look at chapter 2, verse 16. It says, God has said, 
From any tree in the garden you may eat freely except for one. We'll get to that one in a minute. But they could enjoy everything that God had made for them. He had provided. They had nothing that they would ever need. They would never go a day where they woke up and said, how am I going to make it through this day? No, everything was laid out perfectly for them. And at first, everything was perfect for them. Life in the garden was fantastic. It was a place of unity. It was a place of a deep fellowship. It's a place where the first marriage took place, Adam and Eve. Their marriage of unity, of joy, of fellowship, of delight reflected the marriage that they both had to their God, their maker, uh, most of all. It was a place that there was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was no evil, there was no destruction. There was not one thing that on any day would cause them any anxiety or any unrest in their life. It was a place of pure paradise. It was also work there, and I think a lot of us, when we think about work, we go, well, how could that be paradise? But it was work that was fulfilling work. There was no grunt, there was no sweat, there was no pain. It was something good to do, and it was good to do it. God had said in chapter 2, verse 15, Adam, I want you to cultivate the garden. I want you to keep it. It was fulfilling work for them. But there was one rule, there was one prohibition in the garden. It says in chapter 2, verse 9, there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Or 17, God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And you've heard that verse, you've heard the story, and, and maybe there's a lot of questions we might ask. There's a lot to wonder why it was it this way, and, and how did God put this in front of them? And I tell you this, at least, that there's no magic in the fruit of the tree. There's no magic that if they eat it, suddenly they have this transformed ability. But instead, what the tree was and what the fruit was and what the prohibition was, was an opportunity for humanity to either obey and rest and trust in God's guidance over their life, his word, his will, and way to rule in their life, to just trust him where everything was good and everything was very good for Adam and Eve. And that is the knowledge of what is good, resting in the Lord. Or it was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to disobey and to go in their own way and say, you know, I think I could do things better on my own. And that is the knowledge of evil. Do you see that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is named that because it's the place where they could experience either the resting in God because they obey him and his command and they just they experience nothing but good. Or it's the place where they say, I know you said this, God, but I think there's a better way. For me. I'm going to go out on my own. And that's the knowledge of evil. And you know the story in Genesis 3, what they did. The will of God was resisted. The, the, the uh, direction of God was rejected. And the way, the way of God was deserted in their life. They abandoned it all. God had laid it all out for them and they abandoned it all. They said, no, I'll trust my word. I have a will and it takes me in this direction and I'll go my own way. But Adam and Eve didn't get there on their own, right? They had help. And we don't know a ton about the origins of Satan, but we know that he's real. We know that he's an enemy of God. He's an enemy of us. We know that he's dangerous. We know that his chief aim is to dissatisfy hearts from our maker, to dissatisfy our affections from the God who loves us, and to inspire in us confidence in ourselves. And he does this through deception. He trades his lies uh, for, for God's truths. And you look at Genesis 3, what does he do? He begins with deception. He disguises himself as one of the creatures that God had made and God had deemed, he had pronounced, it is good. When God made all of the animals, including the snake, the serpent, God said, and it's good. 
And Satan takes on the form. He, he inhabits the form of this snake and disguises himself in it. And when he approaches Eve, she's not scared. She sees nothing of concern, nothing to worry about, because there's nothing apparently dangerous when he approaches. But you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. We get this picture of what's going on. Paul's writing to, to the Corinthians and to us. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so too your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And this is what Satan did. His target was Eve's mind. He wanted to deceive her mind. And his weapon was trickery and deception. He began to raise doubts in Eve's mind about God's goodness. That God had a good plan, that God had a good intention, that what God provided was the very best of things for life. He began to twist that in her mind, the truthfulness of God's promises, the goodness of God's deliverance, and the importance of his will. And her mental image of God was attacked. And I want you to hear that. That her mental image of who God is and his character in reality, who he is, was attacked. And he was portrayed more as a fiend than as a, a friend. And he fell. Satan tempted. And remember when he tempted, what he said, he says, if you'll eat of this tree, you will be, what? Like God. Man, we love the idea of being like God, don't we? Not God-like, like I'm submitting to him and he's living through me and so I'm, I'm beginning to live more like him. But the idea of having the power and the knowledge and the ability and the autonomy and the sovereignty that God has. We love the idea of that. And so... Adam and Eve ate, and as they ate, they undid the order of God. They, they decided that God had given them everything that was good and had provided security for them, and yet they wanted to reach out. They wanted to grab autonomy for themselves. They wanted to decide for themselves what was good to do and how was good to live and, and what was good in this world. But their attempt to be godlike wasn't very glorious, was it? It wasn't very glorious, and it wasn't very good. It's never good when humans attempt to be autonomously divine because we were not made as gods. We were made to submit to God, to worship God, to live in his grace. When we try to be God, it's never good. It's never glorious because we were never meant to live apart from God's guidance and love and rule over our life. And so Adam and Eve, they said, we want it for ourselves. We're going to do things our way, and this is the destructive pattern of sin. I want you to watch what happens. When they reach out to live autonomously from God, some things begin to happen in their life. First, they felt shame, chapter 3, verse 7. It's an experience they had never had. It's an experience that we know so well. Some of us have, have lived in shame for years and years in our lives, and we don't know how to get out of it, right? We press it down. We, we press it down and try to live beyond it, but it's always pulling at us, nagging at us. They'd never felt anything like this before. They felt shame. Their shame drove them because they knew they were guilty. They felt guilt. They tried to hide from God. They heard God coming. Remember, they had this relationship in the Garden of Eden where they could hear God as he walked through the garden in the cool of the day. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes. What did they do? They ran and they tried to hide themselves from God because they felt such deep guilt. They began to blame others. God came looking for them and said, hey, guys, where are you? It's time for our walk. Where are, you guys, where are you guys hiding that, huh? Come on out. Come on out. And what happened? He begins to blame her. She begins to blame the serpent and so on and so on. Nobody steps up and says, God, oh, we messed up. We did the thing. We messed up, God. 
No, they, they felt shame, they felt guilt, and it led them to begin to throw blame around to other people, and there were consequences. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 24 describes the consequences. There are natural consequences that come with our sin. And what are their consequences? Well, the peace of the garden was exchanged for anxiety and shame and guilt-ridden behavior, right? And for accusations thrown around at other people, people blame-shifting, right? That was one of the things, the peace was exchanged for anxiety and the relationship they had with God that was marked with intimacy and trust and beauty where they walked with God, where they they had his pleasure right in front of their face at all times, they could hear his voice. It was broken. The relationship was broken. Consequence two, the serpent was cursed. An animal that had been deemed, pronounced it as good, its form was changed, It it, it received a curse from God in the moment. The purpose of work, remember it was good work. It was good to get up and work in the day. It was something enjoyable to do. It was work and it was fulfilling and satisfying work. The purpose of work changed. It became toilsome. It became painful. It became difficult. The joy of life became something that could only be experienced through struggle and through pain. And Adam and Eve ultimately were sent out of the Garden of Eden. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. So God drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. It guarded it so that they wouldn't return to this tree that produced a fruit that gave them life, so that they wouldn't continue to live eternally in this state where they are trying to live apart from God. They wouldn't be stuck in that. It was a grace that God said, I don't want you to eternally live in sin. And God's purpose in this act in sending them away from from pleasure, from paradise, from intimacy, from perfect protection from all of these things is that the further they they got away from God, the more their hearts would begin to beat for God, that they would desire deep down in their souls, that they would hunger and thirst to be back again, to return to the presence of God and his peace and that garden with God and the joy and delight they had once had, that they would return and be remade into that life that they had before in the order of God. I want you to understand the fall in Genesis 3 really isn't simply about disobedience or eating fruit. It's not just about did you break a rule and did you eat the fruit. But the fall in the garden was about the desire of humanity to reach out on our own and say, God, I don't need you. God, I can do it my own way. God, I see the whole game and I know what should be done I'll go out on my own now. It's the voice inside of us and the will inside of us that says, I don't need you. I got this. And Adam and Eve were the first among all of us in all of history. They were the first to be the perfect example of what Paul would write in Romans 1. Paul said this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made. For even though they they knew God, even though they knew him, they did not honor God and they did not give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, saying, I got this. I don't need God's rule in my life. I don't need the Lord's protection and his leadership and his word and his will and his way in my life. I got this. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What we learn in the Garden of Eden is there is no room 
for humanity to go out running around acting like we are little gods. There's no room for that. There is no room for you or I or Adam or Eve to say, God, you're not needed any longer. I've got this. I know what's best and I will do what's right. It would never be good. It would never be glorious. It's a worship disorder. It only leads to ruin. Because of this, what did Adam and Eve experience? They experienced anxiety. They experienced shame. They experienced guilt. They experienced brokenness. They experienced pain. They experienced expulsion from the garden. And now they're caught in it. And this scene, it replays itself through every person who was born in all of history. There are, are moments throughout our lives where we, we know there's a God. The signs of it are there, like Romans said. We can't mistake that there is a God out there, but we say, I don't need him. I got this. It repeats itself over and over in our lives. We've all stood in Adam's shoes thinking we've gotten away with something. And then something begins to twist us up inside. We begin to feel that something's not right. And we go, this isn't working the way I thought it would work. Life isn't, isn't managing itself the way I thought I would. That decision didn't take me where I thought it would take me. And the knot of emotions is, is building up in our stomach. And then when the consequences land, we pretend we had nothing to do with it. Because why? Because we want to be, as Adam and Eve did, we want to be people who go, I'm fine and I don't have problems and I don't need you. And we think we can run and we can hide from those problems because we want to be in charge of our lives. And ironically, here it happened in front of a tree. And it's not a tree that would be traditionally called a Christmas tree, but as we look back, it might be really smart to call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a Christmas tree. Because it was in front of this tree that the first need for Christmas appeared. Now, I want to read you from the Jesus Storybook Bible, this moment in this story, because I love how the author... Um, kind of leads us through this moment because if it was left at this moment, this would not be a very Merry Christmas kind of message to hear today. So I want you to hear this. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He provided. He gently clothed them and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden and out of their home. Well, in another story, it would all be over and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what and in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and though they would run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him like lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. Here's the promise. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I am coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Look at your Bible at Genesis 3, verse 15. I want you to see what the Bible says about this promise. God says, speaking to Satan here, the deceiver, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, hatred. Between your seed and her seed, and her seed, her descendant, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now understand, the, the first Christmas wasn't celebrated until at least 300 years after the birth of Jesus, but the first Christmas sermon was delivered at least 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus. And the sermon deliverer, the preacher, was God himself, and the congregation was made up of Adam and Eve and the serpent. It was a low attendance Sunday. <laughs> and the sanctuary, the worship center, was the Garden of Eden in front of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And the father spoke this message, the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed, her descendant. And that's a, describing a temporary injury. But he will bruise the head of the serpent. It's describing a permanent injury. God's saying, Satan, I'm sending one who will come and he will crush your head. He will destroy everything that has put a space between me and my people. And I will restore, I will restore all of the things that have been broken through him. And he's speaking of Jesus who would come. That's what this is about. You know, the, the picture that we have on our Christmas cards and decorating our homes of a baby in a manger is a, it's a sweet and a tender and a mild portrait, which sometimes when we sing Silent Night, I'm going, I mean, I've had a baby, had four of them. There are no silent nights when you have a baby. <laughs> but... I think it's a beautiful portrait of the peace that has come when Jesus came to earth. But really and truly, Christmas isn't just a simple, sweet story. It's a powerful, serious story. That's the reason our nativity scene at home still has a red dragon in it. Remember we talked about that years ago? Every year I put the red dragon in and my kids ask. And every year we, we sit down and we have the conversation to remember the seriousness of Christmas to remember the promise of, of, of Genesis 3.15, that the serpent would have one that would come to destroy him. The promises of, of Psalm 2 and of Revelation 12, that a baby would be born with an iron rod in its hand, and this dragon would be looming, ready to destroy. But Jesus has come, not only to do battle, but he's come to win the battle. So we leave this in our nativity, and it becomes a great conversation piece every year for the kids. He comes... So that he could restore all of the things that Satan has broken in humanity. His temptation, his temptation to sin led us to think that we, need, we could do life without God and we didn't need him for ourselves. He's come to win that battle for us. And, and as I, I consider this, this Garden of Eden, I can't, can't help but, miss, but, but not miss the picture that there's no room in the Garden of Eden for sin and sinfulness. But God is saying there's no room for this way of life here with me. There's no room for people to run around being little imitations of God and living life on their own. But Jesus would come to make room, right? God says, there's no room for this in my family. But Jesus would come to make room for us to return again to that garden. Turn in your Bible to John 14. I love John 14. John 14, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, with his followers, those who have turned from all of the other wills and ways of life and said, I will follow you, Jesus. And he has washed their feet. He has served them a meal with a message. One of the disciples has left them and gone on to betray them. And Jesus is speaking to them, preparing them for his crucifixion. 
and for his resurrection. John 14, 12, Jesus says to them, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. How many of you grew up with the King James Version? Many mansions. You remember that? Many mansions. And we read about streets of gold and pearly gates and many mansions. And so we were talking about whose mansion would be next to whose mansion. And would I like my neighborhood and would I like my neighbors in heaven? Because the mansions sound awesome. But, but the word here, in my father's house are many dwelling places, the word means a place of staying. The word Jesus used means a place of remaining, a place of abiding, a place where you don't go away, a place where you belong is what this word means. In my father's home, home, uh, house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, listen to the promise, I will come again and I'll receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And one of the disciples, Thomas, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, y'all read this with me, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Three things, three things I want you to see here this morning. There is no room in the family of God for us to run around, little imitations of God, leading our own lives. There's no glory, there's no goodness in it all, so there's no room for it. But Jesus comes to make room. The focus here is more about a person than a place. Do you see that? It's more about a person than it is a place. Heaven or the new earth is more about a it's more about a person than it is a place. This is what Adam and Eve and all of humanity lost with sin. It wasn't about the trees and the leaves and the flowers and the rivers and the Garden of Eden, how beautiful it must have been. It wasn't about a place. It was about the presence of God being so near to them that they could walk with God in the cool of the day. They could see his face. They could hear his voice. They could experience his perfect provision and protection every day of their life and never worry about a thing, never have a thing to cry about or a thing to, to lose sleep over at night. They lost that when they lost Eden. It wasn't the place, it was the person. It's the thing our souls long for from the moment we enter this earth to be restored to the very presence of God that we were meant for. That's why Jesus says here, where I am, there you may be also. The emphasis isn't really on, on a mansion. It's on a place of abiding with God. And the picture that Jesus is painting is one of a restored intimacy. One that we were meant for. One that our hearts beat for. One that in Christ we can have again. And he tells us the way. Second thing to learn here is that he is the way back. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the one who makes room for you and I to come back to God in the garden. He is the only way back to God to be close once again, to enjoy his presence, to know his peace, to sleep at night, waking with no worry on your mind. There is no other way to the Father but through him. Third thing is there is plenty of room with God. I want you to notice that. There is no room under the conditions that we run around seeking to be our own gods, but there is more than enough room for all who would bow before Jesus. And that is the work that Jesus did when he came to earth. It's what he was born for. He came to seek and save that which is lost, right? It's what he was born for, to bring us back into the place with God. Galatians says it this way, Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman. By the way, sent forth means he was already there. In the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect union as had always been. God sent his Son who had left glory behind to enter earth. Born of a woman, why? Because of Genesis 3.15, because the seed of a woman would come to crush the head of a serpent. Born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He would come and destroy the works of the devil and to pay the price that had to be paid to make room for us to come into the family of God and be his children in perfection once again. That's his first advent. That's the one that the trees and the lights and the songs are all about. And Jesus said here in John 14 that after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, he would go away for a time. But he will come again. He will come again and he will receive us who have trusted in Jesus to himself that we might be with him always. Remember in the Garden of Eden when, when sin happened, when we struck out on our own, Adam and Eve didn't turn back to God. They didn't say, oh, we've done it. We've got to go find God. We know he's good. We've we, we got to go to God and receive from him his goodness and his grace. We know that he's always provided and cared for us. We trust him. What did they do? They ran and, and they hid. And God came looking for them. He came for them. He said, where are you? God knew where they were, but he wanted them to come to terms with their predicament. He wanted them to understand their situation and to turn to him and hand it to him. And God still is walking around. He's still here saying, where are you to you and to me? To every person who walks the face of the earth, God's saying, where are you? And he wants us to come to the terms of our predicament. And we have this opportunity. What can we do? Well, one, we could run and we could try to hide and we could try to deal with sin in our own way. Still trying to, to paddle our way out of the trouble that we found ourselves in. Trying to be our own gods and say, I got this. I know what to do. I can handle it. Or we can come out into the light. We can recognize the goodness and the grace and the love of God for us. And we can ask Jesus to heal and to restore those things that have been broken in us. The good news of Christmas is that God steps in. The good news of Christmas is he steps in. He doesn't come and destroy everything in his sight and say, you shouldn't have messed up. But he steps in to redeem and to restore all of the brokenness inside of us, to return us to the place that we were meant for, that we could be once again something that was called in Genesis, not just good, but very good. Remember how we end our services every week with 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's what Jesus does. He comes he says, come out from hiding. Let me make you new. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that Jesus comes looking for us. Where are you? Will we hide? Will we come to him and let him make us new? And while we wait for his return, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. While we wait for his return, as things will be remade and things will return to paradise where God will be in the center of the garden and we can walk with him in the cool of the day, I want you to hear the end of the story. This is Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of, of the water of life. It was clear as crystal. It was coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
It's about provision. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, look at this. What is it? Oh, my goodness. In the middle was the tree of life, the one that we were barred from, the one that would give us eternal life, the provision of God that would satisfy us fully and forever, right? We were barred from it because of our sin, but in Christ there's a return. And there was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You think about leaves, you think about medicines and teas, you talk about balms. God is providing for humanity everything that is needed as we return to this place. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, will have work, and it will be fulfilling and satisfying work, and they will see his face once again. Oh, yeah, amen. I'll get, I'll, you and me, the two of us, the rest of them, they'll pick it up later this week, but you and me, we're on the same page. A day is coming when Jesus will return. It's the second advent. We celebrate the first, but don't celebrate the first without thinking about the second and what stands between. Jesus has come. He has said, where are you? And it's a time for us to either run and hide, try to deal with our stuff and find ourselves in that perpetual problem of I'm not God and I can't handle this. Or to come out into the light and say, thank you for coming for me. Will you make me new? And we long for the day of his return when all things are made just as they were meant to be in the beginning in the garden. That's a vision to kind of lead us forward throughout the holidays. Isn't that beautiful? It begins in a garden, the full presence of God, satisfying work in a tree of life. It goes away, but it comes again through Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, We pray that we would hear your word, know your will, and trust in your way. And as the first of us rejected and deserted those things, pray that we would cling to those things. Thank you, Jesus, that you left eternity and glory behind to enter time and humanity and to live and to suffer and, and to die, but in power to resurrect, that things could return. And I pray for everyone here today that they would believe with the very weight of their life, that they would believe on you, that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and that even now those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have trusted you, we would taste just bits, just appetizers of the garden to come, of the life to come, that we would believe that vision of revelation isn't just some, some mystical metaphor, but it's a, it's a kind of a reality ahead that we'll have intimacy once again with nothing in between you and I, God. There'll be unity and fellowship among the people and we won't fight anymore. We won't worry about the provision for our next day because everything we've ever needed will be provided for us and we won't worry about hurts because we're protected perfectly in your care. God, let us long for that day. And let it fuel our celebration this Christmas that we would worship you fully that we would adore you completely. You've made room for us where there was no room. And that we would declare your mercies and your goodness to those around us, that we would make room for those we know to know the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.